0: Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and today we've got the Global Discipleship Initiative giving their track session from last year's forum. It's one thing to have a few discipleship groups at your church, but how does disciple making become the practice of your entire church? This is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast for the simple fact that there are some growing pains associated with shifting to a disciple making culture within your church. There are most likely some programs that are good, but they don't actually make disciples, that as you're shifting into disciple-making culture, those will need to kind of fall away. And when that happens, you got real people with real passions and real feelings that are gonna get hurt. So let's listen to Glenn and Bev and Jim from GDI give us some encouragement on how to do this and share some of their stories that they've experienced along the way. Enjoy the episode.
1: Greg Ogden, a redeployed pastor, so I like to call him retired in 2012, but I don't like that word retired. I like the word redeployed. It's sort of a military term that indicates mission, Uh, and so I've been able to be on mission uh, during my retirement years, and Global Discipleship Initiative is certainly that main part of that mission that uh, I get to enjoy and be be a part of. So, married to Lily, uh, 53 years. Uh, you're all supposed to say, how's that possible? How's
2: You say that about her.
1: But. Yeah, yeah, about <laughs> her, especially about her. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so, uh, and then we have a couple of grandkids, and there they are. Aww. Ooh and ah. Okay. Yeah. And, there you go. Uh, my partner in crime here, uh, in Global Discipleship Initiative, Ralph Rittenhouse, would normally be here in this room today. And, but uh, we both came back from Zambia. Uh, just, I came back Saturday, Ralph just got here yesterday, and uh, he's not feeling too good, so he's <laughs> a, a throat that's not working. And he, will, he would normally be telling the Camarillo story of transformation, uh, but we have a lot of representatives from that same church. So I'm going to bring them up later in our session here to talk about the cultural transformation of that church as a disciple-making church. as an, an exhibit for you to see how all that, that happens. So uh, we miss Ralph being here. Hopefully he'll be able to join us tomorrow, but uh, today he's kind of trying to figure out how to get that voice to work again. so okay, so you can see uh, in our our topics um, in our four sessions we're going to try to ta- tackle an obstacle to making reproducing disciples in each one of the sessions. and of course, you know, I chose those obstacles. You might have other ones that you might see as be more important than these. Uh, as after all these years of doing this, these are the ones that I nominated for us to try to go after today. It's about disciple-making culture. It kind of fits our sessions here, right? All about culture. That's kind of culture out in the world in terms of how the church integrates it and, and, and interacts with it. We're going to talk about internal culture, the church. Uh, how the, the culture and the church support a disciple-making mission. Or how does it actually go contrary to a disciple-making mission? Because a lot of our cultures do exactly that. Uh, next three sessions, uh, think through, uh, think, think you make disciples. Oh, you can think you can make disciples through programs. I can't even read my own writing here. So again, that was talked about some today already by Jim Putman. Uh, you know, we speak at people. We hold classes. We uh, do a lot of non-relational approach Uh, to making disciples, and that's not going to make disciples. So we're going to take a look at why that doesn't work and what you have to put in place. Uh, Number three, overcoming the multiplication conundrum. I call this the greatest conundrum of of disciple making. uh, To see reproducing from one generation to the next to the next. Uh, We have a lot of promises when it comes to this, but not a whole lot of successes. And so how can we uh, see some success in that passion? And then lastly, addressing the myth that... Only the elite uh, can be disciple-makers. Disciple-makers are the special forces you know, of, of, uh, of the church. So we'll try to tackle that. So how does it, the everyday person become a disciple-maker is what that, that last session is all about. So let's jump into this very this current one, um, forming a disciple-making culture. And what's the major obstacle? Misalignment. Bringing into alignment the values, customs, traditions, practices, and assumptions of a church culture so that they are in sync with an intentional, relational, Jesus-style disciple Um We'll get at this. what this culture thing is kind of a vague term, isn't it? You know, what do we mean by culture? What makes up culture uh, in our churches? So, I put it here: values. You know, what are the underpinning values that? you build your ministry on what are the customs that you celebrate, the traditions that you celebrate in church, practices and assumptions, they all form uh, a culture. Uh, what's a disciple-making culture? Well, looking at intentionally building values and customs that actually support disciple-making. They flow with it. It create the energy so that uh, you're all moving in the same direction. It's kind of like the current that flows in a stream. You can be going with the current. Or you can be going... Against the current, sometimes the, the self-making, the culture that we're in is actually going against the current that we're that we're trying to produce. We also have to remember that when any new person comes into your church, they bring a culture, they bring expectations, they bring assumptions. Uh, they bring assumptions. How many pastors do we have in the room here? Okay, they bring assumptions about what you are supposed to be doing as a pastor, right? Never experienced that, I mean. Uh, you know, so they're looking at you in terms of what your role is vis-a-vis them as a people. Uh, there's assumptions we make about the role of the people of God in terms of, of the ministry. There, All those things form the culture of, of disciple-making. So I want you to get into it right away here on this, and so um, I want to take a look at what is a culture that makes disciple-making, but what are the challenges, what are the obstacles to forming disciple-making culture? And just to use this kind of force field analysis as a way of what are some of I'm going to focus on this side, what are some of the inhibiting forces? What are things that get in the way of the disciple-making culture? One of the images that I have found helpful to think about this is uh, disciple-making can be like a skin graft. You can graft skin on the host of your skin, and sometimes that graft takes, and sometimes it doesn't take. Sometimes the, the host rejects the graft, and uh, so that's when uh, we have a culture that is, is rejecting disciple-making because you might have a desire to do something in a certain way, uh, but that culture is actually working against you rather than with you. We'll, we'll look at three specifically in terms of uh, cultures that can work in, as inhibiting cultures. But I want you to talk about this first. I want you to, uh, if you can kind of lean together in maybe groups of three, and think about, I know we got a church group here, right here, all four of you are the same church, so it might be good for you just to put your heads together and talk to each other about, as you think about your own church, uh, can you think of values, customs, um, that may be working against your disciple-making culture? Uh, and how would you identify that? So, and then I'm gonna harvest some of your responses, so put your heads together with some people around you, if you would and uh, talk about your own church setting if you can think about what you might think would be contrary to discipleship. Okay, let me break into your conversations. This hour is going to fly by pretty quickly. Uh, When I was uh, thinking about this, and I'll harvest some of your responses here in a moment, um, I thought back to a pastor that I had in a community called Saratoga in the San Jose area, Silicon Valley. And uh, when I went to this church, as I was a relatively young senior pastor, quite naive about cultural forces in the church. Uh, I don't know about any of you pastors, but I don't remember ever remember taking a class in seminary that says, your job is to cultivate a culture in the church <laughs> of disciple-making, uh, and even pay attention to that. I mean, we all kind of got caught with, oh, there is actually a church culture, and actually values that have been in place, there are do's and don'ts that you, you go to. So I, I, first couple of things I noticed when I came into this church, I, I followed a very beloved pastor who retired a young, at age 60, uh, by men saying, I just don't know where else to take the church, I'm, I'm sort of done, somebody else needs to take over. And two things I noticed right away that were sort of hidden forces, which cultural values are, sometimes they're explicit and a lot of times they're just hidden, they're underneath the surface, right? And I noticed that this was a very cautious church. Any new ideas by the leadership was met with, oh, you can't do that. And, and the second thing was the role of pastor had been defined by the previous senior pastor as one who was a caregiver, always there when people were sick, uh, visiting in the hospital, you know, count the primary counselor in the church. Everybody looked to stand for the caring of, in the church. And I came in with kind of a different model of ministry and uh, ran up against that, and realized that uh, Stan was a very cautious person. What people finally told me was, anytime time he saw any resistance to any new idea, he backed off,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and that just became a part of the mentality of of the church. That became part of the culture of the church. So, uh, trying to go and trying to go in a different direction with uh, care ministry, I was not a Kind of very skilled yes. care pastor, uh, more of a more of a leader and director, and so I once I came there I said I'm banishing a phrase, we're no longer going to use pastoral care in the congregation. Uh, we will have a ministry of care, but not pastoral care. Well, that was <laughs> uh, it was tough going to get to a place where we minister to each other, not just look to the pastors to minister to us. And uh, so cultural values, you know, that uh, are there. So what, did you, what identify some cultural values that you found to be inhibiting and resistant um, to making. Yes?
3: The leadership does not want to change. We're doing fine. Okay. That
1: is a very important point. The more successful your church is the more resistant you will be to intentional, personal discipline. Because we're doing just fine. By all the success standards that we used to measure at church, um, got enough people coming, the budget's being met, um, you know, we got a good crowd on Sunday morning, why upset the apple cart? Just keep it going. We're successful as is. So that's one of the major resist- resistant forces. Yeah, others. Yeah, as a older church, uh, we've never done that before. Okay, you're bringing yeah. something new. Bring something. Yeah. Okay. So the whole issue of new or cautious, or again, kind of another side to that same thing. We're doing just fine. Don't. Because you know. change happens for one of two reasons in church. What are those two reasons? One is you are such, able to cast such a vision of where you want to be. Uh, and where God wants you to be as a church, that you see the gap between where you are and where you want to be, and you aspire uh, to that new vision. Second one is things are so dysfunctional that everybody knows it, and it's not working. And we'll actually talk a little bit about that uh, when we talk about the Camarillo story, because uh, they had done some inter- internal assessment and realized they were not doing a good job at just out making and owned it and saw the need, and that provided the basis for, for moving, moving forward. So if things are just fine, why change? It will be, that's part of the resistance. Okay, anything else?
4: Yes. Yeah, the vision of the church life so is Sunday, Sunday and take midweek. Take around so I can see who you are. Jim. Thank you, Jim. The vision of church life is Sunday and midweek worship and Bible studies. And that's, that's how people are defining okay. the interaction. So when you suggest you know, discipleship groups or one-on-one, it's out the context of their vision.
1: Okay, so not not seeing delivery in, in that fashion yeah. before. Okay, so so Sunday, other two or kind they, of Bible study they, groups, yeah.
4: that kind of thing. So the yeah. brother here had mentioned that they're thinking, the, the member's thinking is that they go to a Bible class to the programs, that is the discipling.
1: Uh-huh, okay, exactly. Okay. I think an inhibitor is some people say it's just another program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this is, yeah. It sounds like just another, another program. program. Yeah, what's? How's well, this different? We already yeah. have twenty-five programs. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you know, you'll keep hearing this phrase throughout this conference. You know, Jesus-style disciple making, intentional relational disciple making. That word "relational" is needs to be in capital letters because. Lots of what we do in the church, as we'll talk about in the next session around programs, it's not relational. You're not engaged in relationship with each other and open with each other. It's it's programs delivering content, uh, but not necessarily engaging with other people and around the word of God and applying it uh, to our lives. Okay, anything else?
2: I wanted to say, Greg, sometimes I'm noticing in my own life that I can frame a new vision in a dishonorable way and an honorable way. And the dishonorable way sometimes is those in the recent past have done it wrong, uh, okay. and I'm here to correct it. Okay. And we'll yeah. correct it. Yeah. And that, of course, brings a, a dis- that dishonor. It seemed like right. the Holy Spirit never uses that. Right. But then I can frame it also the same way. If we're going to go back to our original intention,
5: mm-hmm.
2: maybe we veered off course. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe we, not him but or them. But So I think it's just a matter of honor and uh, Approaching a new vision. Okay.
1: That's that's a really good point in terms of how you articulate what it is that you are doing and, uh, and if, rather than elevating yourself as the one who's the savior who's brought a new direction to the church, you know, that kind of thing. Which uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The right person is now here to lead us forward you know, that kind of thing. Okay, let me uh, highlight three uh, major, kind of broad, um, Oppositional forces to uh, disciple make first one is consumer culture and the attractional model, which has already been referred to I think by by Jim Putman. It was a wonderful book uh, written by Kent Carlson and Mike Lucan named the Renovation of the Church. I know maybe some of you have read that and seen that and uh, it was them coming to church coming to terms with the whole idea issue of consumer culture in our, our society in fact, let me just read to you the forward by Dallas Willard from this book. Uh, Very first paragraph of the book is this. Willard writes, how do we present the radical message of Christ in a church that has catered to the religious demands of the nominally committed? There's a a question now, just in itself. Uh, In other words, if we've gathered people into congregations by appeasing their appetites and desires, how can we help them deal with the fact that their problems in life and character even in church are primarily caused by living to get what they want? Man, there's a lot of self-packed in there. <laughs> how can we cross? How can the cross and self-denial become the central fact in a prosperous consumer culture? How can discipleship in Jesus, in a sense, recognizable form of the Bible with the spiritual formation transformation it brings? be the mode of operation at a thriving North American congregation. Well, this is the story of Oak Hills Church in Sacramento in terms of trying to change. They, they had adopted basically the Willow model of attractional uh, worship, putting on the program each week with highly intensive you know, kind of production that they were doing. And they were, frankly, after 10 years just getting tired, you know, putting on the production uh, for those that they were trying to attract who were nominal Christians or not Christians at all. And they had become fairly successful at it. They had drawn a pretty good crowd in that. And then the staff went away uh, on a staff retreat, and they were reading Lyle Schaller's book at that time called The Very Large Church. Schaller made a point uh, in his chapter on the consequences of consumerism um, that basically every church has to deal with the consumerism of our culture. And uh, his question was, do you identify this new context as a source of despair or as a challenge to your creativity? So, and he was saying, okay, basically accept it. This is what's true of our society. It's a consumer society. We have to appeal to the needs, the needs of people, resign yourself to it. Uh, You have to figure out how to exploit consumerism. Uh, That's the only option that you had. And at the staff retreat, they had this kind of come to Jesus moment that said, no, we don't (laughs) Have have to go down that road. And they they write in the book, gradually, we began to get some clarity on a troubling truth. Attracting people to church based on consumer demands is in direct and irredeemable conflict with inviting people, in Jesus' words, to lose their lives in order to find them. So that is the reality, and it's not an easy thing to traverse within our um, church life in terms of if we're starting by meeting people's needs and appealing to them and doing what we think Will attract them to the church. How do you turn that around and then call people to a deeper life of discipleship? And this church said, We're not doing it. They went into a I think a five to ten year process of transformation that was very painful. I mean, they, they described the pain of moving out of the attractional model, the putting on the program um, you know, uh, each, each Sunday morning, to trying to move to a much more formational approach to to disciple mating. and They're still functioning today and alive, uh, but it took them a long time uh, to get there. But they just decided to meet this head-on. We don't want to do this anymore. And they write, as person after person shared at the retreat, we slowly began to realize that to be faithful to the gospel, consumerism was not a force to be harnessed, but rather an anti-biblical value system that had to be prophetically challenged. Ooh. Are we ready to do that? <laughs> That's uh, hey, respond to that um, in terms of the prevalence of consumerism in our culture. Now, I'm not going to give you all the answers to this, but uh, we can at least talk about them in terms of uh, how have you had to, have to address this issue in your own church setting? How have you done that? Uh, what do you think? It's kind of a false gospel. False gospel. It's a, it's a form of a false yeah. to Yeah, to appeal to yeah. and a, on a consumer I'm here, basis. To, I'm here to please you. Right, yeah. No, we we have, offer a smorgasbord of programs that meets every need. You know, Life of Church, I was a part of a large church in Chicago that sort of had that mentality, yeah. that approach.
4: Confronting this, I think we need to confront internally also Because as a pastor, I do have a great deal of influence over what we do, so maybe I just don't like what you like, so we're just going to do it the way I like it. That's obviously
1: better. (laughs) Right. uh, And so, yeah, as we're confronting what is obviously a problem, I'll just show up and you do, I'll I'll pick what I like and I'll get it from that. Yeah. Um, Like I say, for me, at least I need to be careful that I'm not just exchanging one consumer for another. Right. But does this lurk in the background of our
5: decision-making?
1: Uh, and do we, are we aware of that, this consumer mentality and appeasing the needs of the people in our congregation uh, who are you know, the non-committed or um, minimally committed uh, as our approach? But I think this is one of the currents that we, we fight against you know, in terms of our, uh, that we have to figure out how to address. Let me go on to this one. Disciples made through programs, which we'll pick up in much more uh, detail in our next session. But let me just uh, uh, highlight it here um, because I think we deliver programs in our churches. We have Bible study programs, we have uh, seminar programs, etc., to address various various needs. When I came to Christ Church of Oakbrook uh, in 2002, I guess it was. Um, as the executive pastor of discipleship in a large church in the western suburbs of Chicago, uh, we were trying to shift the church from a very program-oriented culture to a relational culture. And the primary paradigm for how to make disciples, at least in this church, was you hire a seminary graduate, Mm -hmm. uh, you put them in front of a class, and you teach theology to people. So um, I remember my first few Sundays at the church, there was a, a class without a without a pastor because that pastor had retired and they came recruiting me would you be our teacher and uh and i found out kind of what the methodology was that people would gather kind of like this not talking to each other very little relationship going on class would start when the pastor got up and began to make some announcements and then teach for 45 minutes to an hour some good theological content and then dismiss the group and they went away That was their usual approach to thinking that something happens if you actually teach for an hour and you know get theological content in. And their primary concern here, out of a reformed tradition, was that people understood justification by faith alone. If you could articulate that, you could get your box checked and you were good to go, and we felt happy about you. And so I said, "Well, tell you what, I will be your teacher." But there I have a couple of qualifications. One, we have to form a ministry team, turn this into a ministering community. Uh, and how many of you are willing to be a part of a team to, to do that? We're gonna get out of rows, we're gonna get around, we're gonna get around tables and circles, and we're gonna have a lot of interaction and discussion. Um, and we actually were able to make it a shift in a direction of a relational culture. So moving from that program culture to a relational culture, moving from a kind of a consumer uh, mentality to a more missional mentality uh, was kind of the broad strokes that we were trying to move over a ten-year period in terms of the the direction for that. So the program approach, <coughs> at least an illustration of that. Uh, so, um, one more thing, and we'll, yeah, go ahead.
4: Did you write, when you moved them into the tables?
1: Did they, was that table locked, or could they sit at any table at any time? Uh, it was. It was any table at any time. We didn't. We didn't direct uh, there.
4: So we, the, we did have. We did have
1: some trained discussion leaders, so we made sure that we had so was people at different things.
4: Relationships because they had different
1: people ever sitting? Well, you know what happens, don't you? People come on a regular basis and they sit in the same place, right? So oftentimes <laughs> they develop their own sense of community you know, in, that, in that fashion because we become comfortable uh, with the people around us. But we did have trained leaders at the tables to facilitate this kind of thing. It, we certainly didn't go all the way of what we needed to do in terms of the we talk about discipling and Global Discipleship Initiative. We talk about microgroups as the primary context in which we make disciples. one person inviting. Three or two or three others to be on a journey together of discipleship in a close group over a year to year and a half, equipping them to disciple others. So that's that's our primary mode of what we do in our ministry here. So one final thing before I bring up some representatives from Camarillo Church and see how they went about things. Um, the last one here I called the dependency model ministry. I, I wrote a book um, many years ago called it was now called "Unfinished Business: Returning the Ministry to the People of God," in which I said the primary paradigm in most churches is what I would call a dependency model ministry uh, versus an equipping model ministry, and tried to contrast uh, those two. And so, uh, when we visualize an equipping model ministry, uh, the Ephesians four eleven and twelve passage is certainly front and center. And I like this picture of how you break down Ephesians four eleven and twelve in terms of if. This is functioning as it's supposed to. You have what some people call the support gifts—apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors. I I put hyphen teachers. Some people would say no. There's five gifts there. I think there's four, but we don't argue about that one. Okay? (laughs) Uh, And they have one job. What's the job? Equip the saints. And if the saints are being equipped, then what's the consequence? Work of ministry is getting done. If the work of ministry is getting done, uh, then the body of Christ is being filled up, right? So who are the ministers? The ministers are the saints. You know, the ministers are not these four people. We, you know, we, our language gives us away most of the time. How many of you who are pastors said, uh, when were you called into the ministry? Well, if pastors are doing the ministry, what's left for the rest? You now. And the ministry is associated with pastors. Well, that's not what we want. That's not what this this passage says. But, excuse my, what I think has actually happened is that uh, we expect the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to do the work of ministry. And if that's the case, then all this other stuff is not happening, not taking place. And so we look to our professional staff uh, for that. So that's why I call it the dependency model ministry. So, um, you know, Sunday mornings is the setup for that, right? Because it's the pastor that performs uh, on the stage on Sunday morning. Uh, we have the pastoral line that people shake your hands after after service, and they have you have to say something nice about what was said that morning, right? So <laughs> you have to give it sort of an instant review. I call it the spectator-performer relationship. And so we're the we are the spectators coming to hear the performer, and then you give an instant review of how that person did. Oh, wow, good sermon this morning, Pastor. You might even get something as prod- laudatory as, that's the best sermon I've ever heard on that. topic." just so that you would do better next week.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: and so I oftentimes at the end of the service would think, well, maybe the choir should hold up a number and give a rating. You know? <laughs> well, this was a 9.2 this morning. And, uh, my, my favorite comment, though, <laughs> Um, one Sunday morning, was a woman came by. I call it a drive-by shooting, and uh, so she she shook my hand and said, "You know, pastor, you're getting better."
6: <laughs>
1: now you live with that comment. <laughs> better than
2: what?
1: <laughs> so this whole idea that uh, we that I, Jim really hit this hard and his message this afternoon in, the, in terms of the whole issue, the role of pastor and people, how do we work together as one community in ministry and uh, our role as equippers, uh, but if, if the culture is, and this is a major element about culture, uh, what's the attitude about what the role of pastor is supposed to be um, by the general congregation? What's pastor's expectations of themselves and in the, in the, in the, uh, how they carry out their ministry vis-a-vis the people of God and uh, helping people. So does it all come back to pastor being central? If that's the case, then you've got a culture that is absolutely resistant to disciple making. You have to have a culture where the pastor is the equipper and trainer, and the and as we will hear in a moment, um, the number one disciple maker, as Jim was saying. You, can, you have to, as the, probably the key to this whole issue of changing the transformation of culture, we would come back and say, yeah, it's the senior pastor's role. Senior pastor is not only the primary exponent of, of uh, disciple-making, but the primary example and model. You've got to be modeling exactly what you're talking about here. Bev, if you come on up please, Jim, Joel, and Jim. Um, and just to lead into this a little bit, these are, these are three people that were at the foundation of the transformation of Camarillo Community Church. And, um, and a number of years back when that whole process started, probably about 2010, if I recall. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, um, you know, and I had an opportunity to work with the church over the years and be of hopefully some assistance. <laughs> not get too much of the way. And Jim was a, a pastor in the community and experienced the overflow of what was having in Cameron Community Church and how it impacted you. So I'll get to that question in a moment. So I got a since Ralph is not going to be here today and uh, to tell that story. These people were at the foundation of the change. So they'll probably do a better job than Ralph ever could have done. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, so um, I, as I mentioned earlier, change happens because of one of two reasons. Vision casting based upon what we aspire to be and, and lists of people on the congregation. Or need, but I think it was recognizing a need it got the process going, if I understand it correctly. I've hold, heard the story enough, I think, mm-hmm. um, to That's say. So, so, Beth, maybe you can speak to that.
6: Um, I volunteered to be Ralph's executive assistant, or do the PowerPoints, because we were in an event-driven church, and this was 2007. So, the key factor, I think, that helps everybody understand the disciple-making process is this didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, Ralph Rittenhouse, was at the church in 1982. It was about 30 people. And then it started growing and growing and growing. They built one church and they built another church. And then by 2002, they had four services and a big church and another church and just numbers, events. And Cheryl was in charge of big outpouring of Christmas stuff.
1: Well, Christmas production.
6: Yeah. Um, A lot of you are probably familiar with a bell curve and churches go up and then we were reaching a plateau and then numbers were starting to go down. So Ralph told me, well, find out what we need to do. We're going to do a retool. We need about 30 people. Find out and in three years we're supposed to figure out. Why are we going downhill? What's happening? Uh, what do we need and, to do? And
1: Bev was Ralph's ex- executive assistant, just as so another yeah. role. we well, just oh. volunteer and well, just
6: doing all he said to I, do. You <laughs> were executive assistant. <laughs> and as a result, then uh, we thought that okay, we need to do a little bit more in the worship area and a little bit more in the community outreach. And I was just gung ho, and I still am, on discipleship because I was part of the navigators in. Yeah, and my right junior back. college, so were you, Joel. Yeah. And I was also on staff in Campus Crusade. So I knew both sides. And you're a former navigator, too. So as a result, I knew what one-on-one discipleship meant. And I also understood very much that if you're a Christian, and I went forward, in the Billy Graham Crusade when I was 15, 19... 62? <laughs> and I started reading Romans, and I understood how how much I needed Jesus by Romans 7, as you probably know, and Romans 8 just gave me that joy. So, key factor, if I'm going to have any theme here, is be in Christ. I knew that I could not do this, and I knew that it would take something beyond me and trying harder to be a good girl in a church, going to church, doing stuff. So, As a result, then, I knew that it was going to be um, a factor to let go of that and have disciple-making part of this church. That's when we found your book. Yeah.
1: So I I know you did an internal diagnosis of what was going on in the church life. You finally identified you're doing some some great things, but also found out you're doing a miserable job at discipling. For and sure. you're getting deeper into people's So we people's found your book. Yeah.
6: And when I saw that first page, I mean, I was on fire because I had never really realized that Christian and disciple were the same. I did not know that those two were synonyms. So I went into the office. Jim was sitting in the front. You probably remember this. This is dynamite. <laughs> and I just was so excited. I started one group. I started another group. and Ralph didn't get on board. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, you remember, I called you, I uh, called you, uh, well, I and you were going down to I
1: don't see your mother-in-law in Burbank.
6: You remember the stuff, God, yeah. and, and you came up to our church, and you gave a three-hour speech, and it really didn't catch on. Okay. Now, this was 2010. My,
1: my <laughs> wonderful <laughs> teaching didn't catch on anything. Anyway.
6: <laughs> okay. Well, there was resistance, just like you just yeah. said, yeah. you know? That's right. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah people are, yeah. but you caught on then six months later with Ralph and so did you Frank yeah so then that whole thing started where yeah, this, it was is, this like is very
1: interesting they, the way they tell the story and what Ralph tells it. <laughs> <laughs>
6: <laughs> and I'm sure
1: glad we've got another two years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> 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 well Ralph tells this story that he's coming back from a conference, he's on an airplane, he's reading an article from Leadership Magazine written by John O. And and my Lord, my book is referenced, Transforming Discipleship is referenced in that. So he comes back and he googles my name and fu- buys the book and gets a, a book, for you, the and booty, book for you and book for you and and your other one yeah. uh, other pastor. Yeah, right and, right. right. and you read this book over a few weeks period of time and then Tried to, okay, let's go into that well, I part.
6: Didn't, I didn't even read it. I just started... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm finding out a lot of things. Are... <laughs> just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, partnership and trust. Okay.
6: <laughs> well the thing is, it see Ralph was so involved in events and he was working with Cheryl, just oh we're gonna have the best Christmas thing and he was all Christmas, Christmas, Christmas and Cheryl said, We're not doing any of this. <laughs> and we're going to cancel Christmas. Okay. And that was a big thing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right? a- in quotes, uh, figuratively. OK, let me, let me dive in here. That, uh, so at least as I understand the story,
5: <laughs> you
1: uh, read, read Transform Discipleship, and then four of you on staff decided this. You, let's experiment. Let's do this experiment, and, and each recruit two or three other people in a discipleship group.
7: Jim, maybe you can pick up this story from that, that point. So um, we did. Uh, Jim's on the staff account. I'm on camera. staff. Yeah. Um, Current. Current. That camera for really uh, At the time, pastor of uh, small groups and became the pastor of discipleship as we uh, incorporated both small groups and micro groups into our church. Um, Ralph was dissatisfied with what was happening with his leadership. Some of his leaders were um, uh, very committed to the church, but uh, sometimes it was hard to tell the difference between their. Um, how they lived and their secular neighbors lived, and, and not necessarily leadership, but would be long-term members of his church. And that was very frustrating for him. and it was, we looked for some things to change that. And part of that was reading uh, this book and said, "Hey, let's, um, I'd like you to read this and tell me what you think." And I came back and said, "I think it's a great idea. Let Let's try it." And so we sat in uh, the, there's four of us, uh, Ralph was one of them. I was one of them. Beth was one, and uh, another pastor, Daryl. Uh, so the four of us uh, tried a quad, and we went maybe each two of us or three took months. Two or
6: three people, in other
7: words. Yes. Yeah. yeah each of us had a quad, uh, but we were meeting. So we went about three months, and we were meeting about every week or every other week. Said, "How's it going?" Well, so, this is going pretty good. Um, our folks are really responding to this. And we went another six months, and uh, Ralph goes, "This is dynamite!" And he uh, he can t- he he releases his quad because most of them were elders, and said, "You go get, um, and you go get uh, and start quads." Um, I had some people that were a little not as mature, and it took me a little longer. And uh, but eventually, we finished, and they went out and started um, quads. And it took us two years before we actually mentioned. From the pulpit or the front, that we were actually doing this, mm-hmm. and and we only did that because they were starting to have rumors of secret society that was, <laughs> uh, that was, that was going on. Still they they were actually following uh, the, our our one of
1: our models for GDI is start small, go slow, right. think big. You know, so a, sort of a version of Perimeter Church's model uh, in Atlanta. So. Yeah. Okay, so you're seeing some fruit early on in these groups. You're starting to see multiplication. Joel, you were part of, I think, uh, uh, Ralph's first group, right? Yes. And then right. you started, uh, you took off and began an elder. Yeah, I,
5: I think I was an elder. Uh, yeah. I think Ralph uh, picked me because I'd had that experience of the navigator. I mean, discipleship absolutely transformed my life. Uh, I I I said the other night at at Cheryl's, I was talking to a group of pastors that we hope are going to adopt this methodology of discipleship. Um, But I said, I had gone, I was raised in a Christian home. I had gone, I'd heard thousands of sermons. I'd gone to Wednesday night prayer meetings most (laughs) of my life. And uh, I came to a point in my life, I was just getting out of the Navy, and I said, you know, uh, I know I'm a Christian, I never deserted God, but I just don't see much of a footprint of my own life into what God had called me to in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples. So I fortunately had a navigator that approached me as I left the Navy, active duty, went back to San Diego and challenged me first into a small group, but then onto one-on-one discipleship. And it absolutely... Changed my life. So when Grab, when uh, Ralph uh, grabbed a few of us, Frank was one of them that came to the group. Uh, I caught on real quick. I caught the concept, and so uh, um, Frank was a mature believer. We had another guy, an elder Scott. Uh, so we put, we went through for about six months with Ralph, but then we were ready to start our own groups. Okay. And, and that's what you know causes that. Multiplication well, to really catch on and grow, and be, and Greg, because right. what you said, they started slowly. They got it amongst the leadership. Right. You've got to demonstrate this. If if can I say this? I don't know. If yeah. <laughs> if you pastors think you can delegate discipleship, oh. mm. you are right. absolutely wrong. Right. <laughs> You've got to model it. For your people, and that's true in any of our lives. Well, so, that that's, yeah. I
1: think is a key point because I, I know the story. Uh, apparently, <laughs> you had a staff meeting at some point or staff retreat, and as the whole thing was developing over two years and two and a half years, the groups were growing and multiplying, yeah. and it was infecting the life of the congregation, changing the culture of the church. And that decision point came as to who's going to be
7: who's going to have oversight over this disciple making ministry and Jim I think you can speak to that right yeah so we were uh, at a big bear uh, comp, uh, house we'd rent a house and we we're up there and we had this retreat and we're we all the staff of now were are part uh, were, we're experiencing this and uh, having their quads and we're we're talking about um, who needs to lead this and you know everyone's looking at me and I'm like um, I don't know about that and Ralph just goes you know what I got to do this. I've got to lead. I've got to model this. Uh, Jim, you can do the paperwork on it, but I'll do, I'll lead this and I'll be the the vision caster for this. And he did that very well. And I I think the other line that came out of that was
1: Jesus did not delegate disciple making. He didn't say, okay, uh, Peter, you're in charge of this disciple making thing. I got to go out and teach. Now, my job is to teach the crowds. Your job, Peter, is to handle the disciples. No, Jesus didn't delegate out making. He, he was hands-on, yeah, and just right. as, as, as we are. Okay, so uh, it's developing in the church. And now, how do you shape the culture? How do you reinforce in the culture a transformation? And what are the ways that you sustain uh, transformation of the culture over time? So what were some of the ways that you did that?
6: Well, I will definitely tell you it is God who puts that on your heart that you know why you're here, why you're created. And the main thing is that it awakened. And it still does. I'm now in the villages in Florida where it's a retirement community, but it awakens all these geezers. (laughs) All of us old people, you finally recognize you've not been put out to pasture and the church is not there just to bring in all the youth and to make the church grow. You are there to make disciples who make disciples because you've got a lot in you. You've had that experience, Amen. and you know Amen. what makes yeah. your life work. Amen. So it's that passion that you have that you know the call of God on your life. There's nothing else that can replace that.
1: Well, that's true. But in terms of reinforcing change within the culture of the church, uh, there are things that you can do. I've got a baton here.
7: Well, hey. How How is this used <laughs> uh, to reinforce the, the, the vision in the church? So uh, once a year we uh, had a dinner and we started talking, you know, bringing and inviting those that were in quads. And those that finished a quad, we would celebrate. And one of the things we would do is hand them a baton. And the idea is you take the baton and you run with it. Please don't drop the baton. And uh, and so that was celebrated when new quads got started. But you did that publicly in front of the congregation too, right? Well, so... So we, we did ha- so we did have these dinners, and we'd, we'd conduct a little bit of training, we'd answer questions, we'd tell them, you're very important, we'd affirm their role in the church. Uh, but um, actually, the batons were handed out Sunday morning. They would come across the stage like it was a graduation. And Three
6: years after we started, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. this not, doesn't happen overnight. Not overnight.
1: Symbols are important yeah. uh, for how you reinforce what is important in the church life. So to be able to complete the quad, hand the baton, Saying to everybody in this church, this is what we're about. This is what our our ministry is about. So those those public moments. I know you had pretty almost quarterly gatherings too of yes. the, of yeah, the yep. people in the in the groups, bring in guest speakers to kind of fire them up again, uh, share cross pollination with each other. I'm going to shift over to Jim here before we run out of time. Uh, Jim was a, a local pastor in Camarillo. And, uh, Jim, you've experienced kind of the spillover effect of what was happening at Camarillo Community Church and your
2: Lutheran church, right? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, without a doubt, and these guys won't say it, but Camarillo Community Church was the nicest, shiniest, and the brightest church in the city of Camarillo. About 60,000 people, 25 churches. And when you're a ch- church planting pastor, you aspire to that, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you look for. How many of you have been plant- church planters before? Okay. Okay, you know, we, we get desperate, right? We get desperate, we doubt, and we we need friends, you know, and it's like my my wife taught me from Women of Faith that if you have one good, solid Christian friend, you should count yourself blessed. If you have two good, real, honest, solid Christian friends, you should count yourself doubly blessed. And if you have no friends, you're probably a pastor or a pastor's wife. (laughs) And so I, I just began looking for friends, and I found them in ministry. And this is a church that started with 40 and was working its way to 150. But just discouraged, worn out, tired, doing pastoral care ministry. And Ralph Rittenhouse was a true friend. And the pastor of these friends said to me, when I came on board, a lot of pastors were like, okay, good luck. There's been no good church plants that started in this church for 20 years, you know. And uh, Ralph said to me, "Instead, come on board," he said. Uh, plenty of sinners to go around. More work than I can get done in this town, he said. And he was just encouraging to me. And then some of many of these that are standing up here just became friendly toward the ministry. And I was looking for help and encouragement. My, when you do a church plant, sometimes those in leadership are. Are saved people sometimes not? But they're saved people, born again, but not growing. And I had a a, the president of our congregation was a man who was just real, say definitely saved, but not growing. And I couldn't get him in a one-on-one. I tried. I worked on -on one-on-one navigator-style relationship and wanted to help him grow. But he just, he just, it never did. It never started. It never grew. He never grew. And then suddenly, I, I watched him begin to grow. And I began to ask him, "What's going on, Brad, in your life?" And Brad said, "Well, I'm in this. I'm in this micro group, this quad, at Cam Community." And I mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, tell me about that." Oh, well, we meet in groups of four. We're same gender. We go to, we go study every week. We go through a standard curriculum. I was invited to join. And I'm going like. Oh, I got to talk to Ralph Britton. I called up the pastor and said, I got to ask you about my my church president. He thought I was in, he was in trouble with me. <laughs> uh, he was not in trouble with me. He was my friend. He's a true Christian friend. I said, "What? Hot? Tell us about these groups." He said, "Got this great curriculum. Microgroups is going to transform our church." And uh, I just began to watch him transform in his ministry. He had been there for 30 years in ministry. I remember we were at the local ministerial meeting, you know, it's a group of pastors that, you know, we commiserate, and sometimes we try to impress each other. Somebody asked him, Ralph, uh, you've been in ministry for 30 years. What have you learned after all these years in ministry? He took a long, deep breath, pregnant pause, and he said, we're so screwed up. <laughs> he said, like, what happened? Goes, all these years have been trying to attract people into becoming... Christians, doing everything I can to win converts for Christ. And looking back, are they really Christians? Are they really disciples? And he said, I, I'm, going to try, I'm going to try a new tact. And he had been convinced by what the, what you guys have been explaining, that uh, we can take a new turn. This is a church of 1,000 people, I'm going to say. I'm probably overestimating, but pretty close to that. Biggest, nicest, most beautiful church in town. And the pastor said, you know, it could be possible that we've had it wrong. We're going to go back to basic Jesus disciple-making ministry. It had a huge impact on me. We began to implement the same tools. We began to use discipleship essentials. And uh, it would become very effective. I'm on my 10th generation of discipleship essentials and just working since 2012. And I love having a curriculum that's biblical and solid. You don't have to agree on every single chapter. What? But man, it's. <laughs> you know, I, well, I mean, just. Yeah, yeah, okay, forget about it. I love Greg Ogden. Of course. <laughs> I, love I, love, I
1: love that he's one of us, not <laughs> one of them, right? It's a regular guy. Thank, so. Thanks, Jim. i, I kind of. Please, please, do but appreciate that. <laughs> uh, one more comment and then see if you have any questions. Don't go away here, you guys. You're not done. Um, so, I, I know Ralph often says that one of the most important things. He said on a Sunday morning, one Sunday, he said, people, if you've got a choice between going to your quad or your micro group or coming to hear me preach, go to your quad. Mm. You're going to get more out of that than you're going to come hear me preach, because you won't remember a tenth of what I said the moment you walk out the door. I hate to say that, pastors, but I, I did that for years. I couldn't remember what I had said on Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, questions, comments uh, that you would like to ask people? Yeah. What curriculum did the quads use?
4: What
7: yeah. syllabus did they follow when they started off? So we used uh, a curriculum called Discipleship Essentials. Some obscure author came up with that, and um, we <laughs> this book. We we use that. The beautiful thing, I think we're going to get into that, but the beautiful thing about the book is it's very biblical and it it's uh, sound. Theology—it's like the first year in Bible college—and it gives you a progression to get through. And when you're done, your quad members feel like they're equipped or uh, feel capable of doing a quad themselves. Or that's because microphone. the leadership is shared and it's not focused on one person. You yep. move, okay. move the leadership around. It's- so, by by week experience. by right. week five or six uh, we start sharing the leadership and someone else is responsible for the next mm-hmm. and then the ne- next person for the next chapter and we just go through like that all the way to the end. What, Carl, what do you measure? <laughs> what are um, your, what are your measurements that you good
3: question you look at to say we're we're, we're doing a good job?
7: Okay, so um, uh, I love small groups. I'm not I'm not bagging on small groups, but small groups even you know as we talked about. Um, Sermons have not so much a transformational um, uh, force for uh, for the Christian small groups is, has a little bit more, but not great. Um, we we measure um, success by is there a transformed life? Is there a transformed vision? Is there a new uh, look at what what how they were what God placed them on this earth to do? And, uh, and it, it really changed, I would say, everyone that went through it to, uh, you know, this is, this is my mission. This is my life now to do this. Um, uh, you know, I've had seven quads, and uh, some of them, my early ones, are already in their fourth generation. I just can't, I, I can't, I can't tell you the joy of knowing that uh, I've been able to use my God to impact that many God. people. Yeah. Calgary, no, yes. Specifically, Evans. how do you gather that data? So, um, in my quad, you know, Is it
3: surveys? Is, are you counting numbers of people that are...
7: Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, Ralph left our church in 2015. He was uh, turned 70 and decided it was time to retire. Um, Redeploy. And, and then he, he redeployed to, to this. Um, so we went 18 months without a lead pastor. And uh, we lost very few people uh, in that transition. Our giving was still very solid. And our new pastor, um, a man of God that, that we love, um, said one of the reasons he came to the church or was willing to come to the church, not willing, but I mean wanted to come to the church, because he saw a perceived um, maturity in our congregations. And, um, and, and so uh, we, we didn't do a survey, but each quad leader. I mean we know, we, we, because of transparency, we know the things like what are they looking at on the internet, what's their tithing like, how are they treating their family. I mean, th- These are things that come up and we talk about, and it's easy to, um, to ascertain growth.
3: So you've got leader meetings going
7: on and you're monitoring <clears throat>
3: growth in these particular situations. Yes. So you've got a finger on the pulse and you're very intentional about that. Right? Yes.
5: And
6: one of the things we did, I had an Excel file. And as we would meet over those um, weeks, we would identify who is starting another microgroup. It was almost, if you are a disciple and making disciples, what it did for me was make me much more accountable because I was there to memorize the verses. I was there to be the model. I didn't see myself as a model until I actually people were looking up to me. So it is something where the teacher or the one who starts a micro-group actually is the one who starts growing the most because you recognize that you have to be accountable for what you say and what you're doing and how you're gathering the people. So accountability, transparency, intentionality. You see their lives... Multiplication, yeah. yeah. You see their lives' priorities change. That's a big part of it. What
3: about beyond just the local church body? Did y'all use quads to go out and... To the community and reached
5: all the people. so the one who can speak to that best probably is frank what you tell them
3: what your experiences were sure i i had a yeah you know, obviously ralph always called me the anomaly because you know i was a the of old and my first quad turned out to be six guys and five at the church uh, <laughs> is, is that okay ralph so uh so one of the guys wives had cancer so she was stage four, and we said, of course, it's bringing bring it. him into the quad. So we really rallied around that family, and that, that household, that a year. She ended up passing away in that time. But uh, we did a fundraiser for the, and, their house, and the Missouri owns her house, and that bill's pretty high. And uh, I don't know if you don't look to that. We went to, had a fundraiser at the local uh, golf, golf course, and we raised $40,000. I mean, it was spirit-filled. I mean, Holy Spirit was in that room, big time. And uh, the family got a trip, and the couple got a trip. Always wanted to go. Right. They uh, got their house paid off. I mean, it was incredible. Stuff like that happens, man. It's right, yeah. uh, right my life. Yeah. I just can't explain. It. So you they, know, what similar happened. To you? Were yeah. they a, a Christian family, or they were a Christian? Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, But what about? I'm just pushing a little bit. I, right for yeah. other love that. Yeah, but what about? You know, just from evangelistic. For so, for, to to address that, yeah.
7: um, there was still um, a uh, desire for, from the leadership, for our church members to be inviting their neighbors to yeah. the church and we saw an increase of that, and we did track that. That was tracked. So, really, that became the... Yeah,
1: it's, an, the it's an organic overflow from the group yeah. itself, yeah. Yeah. and in terms yeah. of the outward yeah. focus, but mm-hmm. it, I don't think there was any necessary organized a, 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 you know, process besides the fact that people, lives were changed and they had something to share. Yeah. No.
6: And now it's in 29 languages, and we had... 31. S- uh, well, 31 now, and then... Uh, we had uh, like 60 different countries come in 2015 when you came, and it's just mushroomed all over the world. Now, I mean, you just came back from Zambia.
0: You
1: know. Okay, I, I, I don't want to abuse your time here. So Dan, uh, Dan's our director of our, what we call cohort training uh, for pastors. We offer training.
3: Uh, over a two, Well,
1: you, you do it. You, you, so, sure uh, it <laughs> indeed,
3: in the interest of time, uh, I, I'm looking at, at the room. I'm, I'm seeing interest and say, okay, uh, Greg is talking about it's got to be the lead pastor. And we're seeing it state upon state, country upon country. If the lead pastor is not involved, it's not sustainable. It's just not. So you say, okay, what do I do? Very quickly, because we're out of time, we offer two things. The first thing, and this is recently developed, is what we call a coaching microgroup. So Ralph or some other very experienced microgroup leader will take uh, three pastors and, and start walking them through the process. Because you really, having been in it myself, tried to make disciples through programs, whatever, it, you have to actually get into it and say, okay, I get it. And so we'll do that and for a sufficient period of time until that coach says, okay, and you know it too, okay, I'm ready to go. And then someone will stay with you as you go. So that's a coaching micro group, real quick. The, the other thing, the, the cohort, now let's say you're into your second generation. You're going to have some questions. You're going to say, okay, this is going on, that's going on. Help me better understand. And so it's a two-year deep dive into the structure and process of uh, Christ-like. Jesus-style disciple-making. So I'll just say there's a lot more I could say. I've got some folders. If you're really interested in it, take this. The information's also it's online. Once a month, with four,
1: four pastors usually. Uh, sometimes it's the same four pastors in one church. You know that uh, what we, we have that. that. We have that. Um, and uh, so two two years. Approximately, we just redesigned the curriculum. 19 so sessions. Things to do, work on during the, the month, and then you come together to share what your insights are. And you, it's called turning your church into a disciple-making mission as the overall focus of what we're trying to accomplish. And it's a uh,
3: cohort, you develop deep. I was graduate of cohort one. We're now to cohort ten. You develop deep friendships. Uh, right. I, I'm still friends. Meet with my guys regularly. And so, yeah, I, I'd go on, but again, I, I'm trying to, to wrap it up okay. because you all guys are into your hey, break. a right cohort now. leader. That's right. John. I, I let co- cohort two. two. Okay, yeah. who, won the, who won the book?
4: We'll get her. The coach, now you had a chance to indicate on here if you're interested in the cohort or coaching. You already turned your card in. Let somebody know before you get away, and we'll get you more information. Absolutely. Um, raise your hand, Daryl. Daryl, Randy, raise your hand. These two pastors are in my coaching micro group right now so just uh, this is current information ask our other is in Florida. A lot of house damage members so we, we gathered with him on Zoom and prayed for him. Yeah. David Jacobs. Who is David? Yeah Okay. Uh, so you heard everyone refer to the book, the book that they read, that's the book. Transforming Discipleship. I was in my eighth year at a church that was just growing and growing, and I knew our leaders hit a ceiling. I started searching. I don't remember how I came about transforming discipleship. I read that. That was 14 years ago. Three weeks ago, I started my 14th micro. It's changing lives and changing churches and changing communities. So get a hold of that. Talk to any one of them. About
1: the process. All, all our resources are on the table over there if you want to rouse them. And uh, thank you all for coming today. Appreciate your you,
0: That's all we've got for today. I just want to say I hope that if you are in a season where you're shifting to a disciple making culture at your church and you're experiencing these growing pains, Just God bless you. We're praying for you and there's light at the end of the tunnel and this is the right way to go. This is the best thing for any church is to shift into a disciple-making culture where everyone in the church is being mindful of, hey, you know what? We're not trying to just run programs that are really cool and then putting on awesome productions for our church. We're actually trying to get on the ground and help people follow and trust Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So I hope that you take some encouragement away from that. We've got three more track sessions from GDI coming up next. If you haven't hit the subscribe button, I would highly recommend that you do so so that you stay up to date every time we release new episodes. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your day and I hope to catch you on the next episode. See ya.